I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the only podcast which is done from the Members' Lounge of the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. I'm delighted to be joined today with Christian Spence, who has spent the last, what, week at Conservative Party Conference? Or Conservative last Party week? Conference last week, Labour Party the week before that. Yeah, I'm all, uh, I'm all politicianed out, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and Alex Davis, who very kindly spent a week investigating the state of politics in, uh, in Europe from a yacht. Yes, I was in, I was in Greece having a, a jolly good time on the sea. <laughs> yes. trying, to, trying to avoid politics, actually. <laughs> so we've been away for a few weeks, plenty, plenty to get start, started with. Um, why do we start with the two party conferences? And we'll go with the Labour Party conference to start with because it's a little bit easier to describe what their um, stance on Brexit is now. Yeah, it's dead straightforward. It was banned. Um, yeah. It was the word that shall not be spoken and the topic that shall not be discussed. Um, and of course, this goes back to the you know the political split in Labour. It's uh, there's a tension between the parliamentary party and the membership, um, between the MPs and the voters over exactly what Brexit policy should be. So they're managing to square that circle by just saying we won't discuss it at all because if we do, it'll open up a rift. And uh, our all-powerful uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who interestingly, of course, last year's party conference, of course, was dominated by people. MPs saying that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was an utter nightmare, he was a disaster, he was a left-wing communist come Marxist who would uh, destroy not only the country but the party itself. Um, he said most of this conference being lauded as a very god incarnate. Yeah, um, well. So, you know, the party has changed its opinion on uh, on all of that. But, yeah, dead easy. The Brexit or, negotiations from Labour, there aren't any. Or it's changed, uh, all the parties changed its people that make its opinions. So well, there's certainly it, a bit it, of that going on as it, well. It depends. Now... Just in relation, just a kind of quick recap, what is the view of the Parliamentary Party compared to the view of the members? Because this seems to be the kind of the great bone of contention that they have. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the Parliamentary Party was, was hugely pro-Remain mm. uh, on the whole and remains and remains Remain. Um, the party membership is probably a bit more, it's more balanced. I don't think it's necessarily overwhelmingly leave, uh, but it's a bit more balanced. Um, the voter base is, pro, the current voter base is pro-Remain mm-hmm. uh, for Labour. But of course, a huge challenge is it's old Labour, it's old working class kind of traditional Labour vote. 
um, is actually quite heavily leave, and they've all they migrated in the last election really to uh, to the Conservatives. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things which keeps on coming up, which is you know what can this North London set, for want of a better phrase, offer the person in hell or Doncaster? Yeah, that's it. I mean, and, and you know, all the major political parties are pretty broad coalitions and splits. You yeah, know, Labour has this tension between, as you said, you know the, the Liberal metropolitan elite in Islington, and it's more working traditional working class vote in the in the northern cities. The Tory has a split between its sort of you know, its urbanite metropolitan wealth creators, I guess you might call them, and its rural, its particularly kind of rural hinterlands, mm. much more farming and traditional communities. Um, but it appears to be a bigger split for Labour. It's a bit of a harder one to hold together. Yeah, and the interesting one, I think you mentioned this last week, Alex, or when we were last recording, is how like the Brexit divide has actually caused another split within everything else. You've got, you know, class, wealth, yeah. race, what um, what have you, and now you've got leave and remain, and this seems to be tearing apart all, um, all the parties as much, if not more, than everything else. Yeah, it's why I actually think that Labour's current approach is probably the right one for them to take. I think it's kind of smart, um, because I think we've said before that whichever party tries to take, take the helm of Brexit is going to find itself in a tricky situation where it can't please anyone mm. um, and so I, I, I totally understand why, why Labour might want to re- remove themselves from that conversation entirely um, I mean they would obviously have to uh, come up with a plan if they were you know there's a, an increased threat of a general election or something like that going on um, but for the moment they're kind of just taking taking the back the back stepping on the back foot and uh, just seeing what the Conservatives will do um, but I, I do think actually that even though the Labour's position has always been split and has kind of been changing, you know, even since the manifesto came out, we've seen it change and soften up uh, versus the, the Tories' position. Um, I think Corbyn's actually done a, a pretty good job uh, recently in pointing out the hypocrisies of the, the, the Tory strategy, even if not presenting an alternative one mm. himself. Um, we, I mean, we saw this uh, in, in the House of Commons uh, with Theresa May's speech earlier on this week, which we'll talk about bit later on. Um, he's, he's doing a pretty good job of making of, of poking holes in their approach. Um, yeah, he's found them all, hasn't he? He's found yeah. all the weaknesses and has actually kind of clearly identified them now. It's the stuff we've been talking about for a while. But yeah, I do kind of wonder if they've always been fairly good at poking holes in things, but just the overall story around them was more about you know, lack of policy control, lack of leadership, that kind of thing. And now it's almost a masterclass in party control. Yeah, they're being pretty strict on on the messaging, and I think you know you saw that said earlier. You know, the party conference banned any talk of it, precisely because if it was brought up, it would fracture. Mm. It will yeah. cause it will if you get into any detail in this, you'll cause a huge fracture. You know, Corbyn is is pushing that we have to leave because it's a you know it's the democratic mandate. He'll say even though that's not what he wanted because he ended up campaigning Remain when you know we know his his entire political life has been fighting the neoliberal capitalist bastion that um, that is the EU. Um, but of course, the, you know the vast ways of the backbenchers were were hugely pro Remain and hugely anti Corbyn. Yes, um, and probably still are. And probably still are, though they're managing to kind of control their their public rhetoric on that now. Yeah. So. We've just spoken about a masterful bit of messaging and party control. How does that compare to the Conservative Party conference? Uh, well, I think overall, I think I think the Tories probably had a relatively decent conference. Actually, I was here in Manchester, so I, I spent a, quite a bit of Monday and Tuesday at some fringe meetings and uh, talking to different politicians and businesses. Just out of interest, uh, what were the Chamber of Commerce um, sending you there, sending you there to to discuss it? Who the type of people that you're meeting? Variety of things. Uh, Sunday night we hosted a joint reception with Centre for Cities, which is a think tank specifically devoted to urban economic policy and how cities grow. So we were there with 
a lot of representatives from them, other organisations who do similar kind of work, mm. other think tanks and policy specialists, and Saji Javid, who's the uh, okay. Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government. So he's the man who gave a great speech saying how important devolution is and how we need to move it forward. Um, a little acknowledgement that he's the man who's actually in charge of being able to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> managed yeah. to speak of it all in, at, some, uh, at some disconnect. Uh, but that was that Monday, a huge variety. We, we covered skills, we covered house building, challenge of SME, uh, construction companies. It's, it's the usual thing with policy conferences. We talk about pretty now, much everything. I'm always fascinated by this because obviously we're doing a Brexit podcast. So well, particularly my focus on a lot of things is Brexit. Did you get that feeling that Brexit is starting to creep into these areas of policy, whether it be housing or devolution or anything like that? Or is it just business as usual? It's, I wouldn't say it's business as usual, but it's... Brexit, it, it's more about kind of what we might call the second order effects. So it's not Brexit itself, it's what might be the concomitant risks or advantages depending on where government ends up. So if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about skills, we were at one round table, actually Brexit comes onto the agenda because of potentially reduced net migration uh, mm. into the EU, potentially losing uh, EU skilled workers back to their homelands or other EU 27 nations over the next couple of years, where migration policy fits into all that. So it was discussed at a, at a remove. No, I didn't, I didn't touch on anything. We talked about and around Brexit, but actually uh, the, none of the ones I was, I was at, I mean certainly there were plenty of fringes where, mm. where Brexit was discussed, but from a sheer policy point of view, it's, uh, it's hard, it's complex. Um, do either of you have any views? Let's talk about two speeches here. Let's go with the Boris Johnson one first. I I did not watch the Boris Johnson one. Well done. I, congratulations. I, I, you missed not. I've got the gist of it. Um, I think from other people. Yeah, it's it's what we it's what we saw. It's what we've seen regularly from Boris for the past. Well, since he suddenly decided he wanted to come out in favour of leave. It's what we've seen from Liam Fox, Secretary of State for International Trade. It's the it's an, it's the A level essay on why free trade is good. Um, Did he mention the Corn Laws? Uh, I can't remember, <laughs> but it, it wouldn't surprise me. You know, certainly as we're here in Manchester, you know, it's a good yeah. place. It's just the usual rhetoric. Free trade is good. Um, you know, look at what we did about bringing tariffs down. Yeah, cool, but that's just not what. That's not where the focus for all of these conversations needs to be. Of course, Boris, that was a political speech. Don't forget, he he'd spent the last yeah. two weeks getting himself into great deep piles of doo-doo by, uh, by contradicting the Prime Minister and stated party policy. Um, I think what he needed to do was save his job rather than set up I any can't. kind of strategic government plan. I, mean, I just can't work up a Boris thing. feels to me as if he's desperately trying hard to stay relevant, which is weird for a Foreign Secretary. You, you'd think a Foreign Secretary is auto, automatically relevant. And I can't work out if he helps the Brexit argument, hind, hinders it. I mean... And I can't even work out if he's any good electorally anymore. He's one. No, I think he probably used to be. I think there was a there was a slice of the Conservative Party. I think actually, if you talk to even to some Labour voters, there was a slice that kind of liked him. Mm. But I think it's that kind of like in the way in the way it's kind of fun to you know have a chat with Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it's kind of fun to have a chat with. Um, you know some more of those sort of characters Farage you know if you ask people actually of all politicians you'd, like to, you'd love to have dinner with actually Farage should be pretty close to the top of the list yeah. I have sheer damn interest you know the ability for one man to take a, a, one, a one policy party and drive it to the top of the national agenda is a, you know, it's a colossal achievement whatever you think about the outcome but I think increasingly he's in that kind of space it's that well, it's interesting because he's kind of funny and a bit bonkers, but I don't want him actually running he's anything. The, he's the wild card, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know, having him as Prime Minister would be fun, if rather tempestuous. Yeah. 
Uh, but it'd be fun if you you know if you're quite happy with you know casual racist slogans being <laughs> dropped through speeches and uh, of course he got called out when he was in uh, in uh, uh, I forget where he was now uh, he went to a visit in the temples of Myanmar um, and was uh, busy reciting um, a bit of poetry which sort of talks about the the English Empire invasion and taking everything over and had to be stopped talking by his advisor who said this is not appropriate and yeah you know, oh, but why what's wrong it's like, well this, <laughs> we're trying to move beyond the colonial past <laughs> yeah I would um, uh, I would really struggle as his advisor because I'm not nearly well enough read to recognize when he'd be on one of his uh, um, soliloquies about yeah, uh, colonial I past I think increasingly he's just seen as a bit as you know increasingly as just dangerous mm. essentially you know it's and so you know, we've seen commentators on both sides. I think in the in the past few weeks, that you know, fundamentally the only thing Boris is really looking for here is is his own ego and his own career. If he thinks if he thinks he could get to the top job and stay in by suddenly flipping to being a Remain supporter, it wouldn't surprise me if he did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is another speech, uh, Theresa May's speech. Now, just for the record, I have seen uh, both the Tory and Labour Party leaders' speech and conference every year for the past ten years. I have not been able to bring myself to even watch this. So, if you can um, just very quickly tell us what it, you know, what impact it had, um, and also did it have anything at all of substance regarding Brexit? So I don't, I don't believe it did. Read, 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 read the trans- it, transcripts. It, it was very long. It was. It was very long. Most 50, of that was coughing. 50, to be fair, yeah, forty-five, fifty minutes. There was obviously the issues with coughing, uh, which she, I think she responded to pretty well on Twitter actually afterwards, yeah. mm-hmm. um, posting pictures of all the Gaviscon and medication and stuff like that. <laughs> the poor um, aide that had to run out and buy all that Gaviscon to take the picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, the thing with the comedian handing the P forty-five over. The letters falling off the wall. It, the it didn't go great. It was a bit cringy to watch. Um, and the, the thing is, in Bre- Brexit wasn't included very much in it. I think the, the speech itself was pushing eight, eight, nine thousand words. I think, and only about four hundred of them were about Brexit. And it was essentially a, once again a kind of reiteration of all the same notes that she had in, in the Florence speech. I'm not sure that there was anything particular to be to be pulled out of it in terms of Brexit. It is a Brexit, no, nothing. And even the policies that she did announce, you know, I think we're struck by kind of a, a speech of two halves. Mm. The first half was a lauding of the importance of free markets and how yeah. capitalism has liberated the poor from the world and that uh, free markets are the way to, to move society on and help people get richer. And then the second half was about intervening in free markets where they don't produce the result that government wants. Um, so we went from a very open market, you know, sort of traditional um, libertarian kind of view of the power of free markets in the first half to price caps on energy bills to intervening in housing with help to buy. Now housing needs yeah. intervention and fixing but a massive demand side push is not the way to solve a supply side problem. Yep. Uh, that will just make everything worse. Um, you know, it'll do well, for, it'll do nicely for house builders, undoubtedly. Uh, we saw their shares uh, you know, rise on the back of it, but it ain't going to do anything to fix the market uh, overall. So, all a bit contradictory, really. And as you said, combined with uh, combined with coughing P45s and the set literally disintegrating behind where she spoke, um, it doesn't kind of portray a Prime Minister who has the look filling the sails. I think that's the challenge. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm not going to go into a, a, a diatribe of what worries me about uh, Theresa May because it is long um, I think quietly the canary in the coal mine for all this Brexit stuff might actually be Philip Hammond because he does stuff he doesn't say much but he does stuff so this so this week uh, he's been cri- he's been criticised for not having a contingency why is this important? Um, 
We've had headlines recently that the government is once again starting to look seriously into the implications of no deal. Um, and this was kind of flipped on its head by Philip Hammond, who came out and said that he's not going to allocate budget towards uh, looking into the implications of no deal uh, until it's absolutely necessary, because he thinks it's an irresponsible use of taxpayer money. Um, and it's, it's a weird addition to the conversation, because you have to ask the question uh, whether they are seriously planning for no deal because they think that it's something that might happen, or whether we're going back to this whole, we need to push the idea that we're, we're happy to do this as a negotiating tactic. Mm. Um, and I think Philip Hammond, what Philip Hammond was trying to do was, he essentially said, we're not, we're not going to look into this just to make a statement. Um, so we'll, we'll only put the, money, put the money towards doing it if we think that there's, there's a serious threat of it happening. He's been very open in the past about you know, his opinion that he, he thinks no deal would be a terrible, a terrible way to go. Um, but I think it has significant implications that he's announced that he's not going to put this money forward. Um, because it, it does take weight off that whole negotiating, uh, negotiating argument that we're just, we're just put, pushing this idea forward to strengthen our hand. And, but the thing is, I, I think the EU realises that we are completely unprepared for no deal. Um, and I even think that throwing a few billion at it would not make, make us prepared for no deal whatsoever. Um, if we were going to seriously prepare for no deal, it, it, would, it would take years. Um, and I think the EU knows this, and I think the comments that Donald Tusk made uh, today or yesterday um, kind of back this up, you know, where he's saying that if things haven't really moved on by Christmas, that's probably the point which we should start talking more seriously about this, because they, they realise that it's going to be a massive financial uh, uh, investment going to be needed, and, and a lot of time is going to be needed for us to be able to uh, adopt to that situation if it, if it comes to it. Yeah... Just, I mean, this is just uh, completely off topic, but a thought I've just had. When you say a massive financial commitment, are you are we talking a massive financial commitment on the scale of, say, the banking crisis financial commitment? I, not necessarily in terms of financial, because that would depend on what kind of the government's economic response is to, to yeah. what No Deal means. Now, there's a variety of forecasts out there. Um, in, in terms of looking at kind of you know economic impact of a of an absolute break, none of them come out better than about minus seven and a half, minus nine percent GDP impact, uh, which would give you an economic crash larger than two thousand eight. Um, which is about five percent. Yeah, no, few estimates go wider. The World Bank did some new numbers this week. It puts a flipping to WTO trade terms would remove 50% of our trading goods and 60% of our trading services. So that would take about 14% of the UK economy away. Um, so those are numbers which are, well, you know, the, 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 the kind of baseline estimates, the median estimates are worse than the financial crisis in 2008. The worst case, but the World Bank estimates would put us at worse than the 1929 recession. In which case, government's mobilisation to try and support the economy would have to be unbelievably large yes. uh, to try and make any inroads into any of that. Um, but I think it's more about the investment required to, if we're going to go down the no-deal route, what is it you now need to put in place? The, the, the new systems that are required to handle that, I, yeah. think, I think, are the big one. Yeah. Uh, essentially, in the, in the short term, at least. Yeah, so we're, you know, oh, you know, we're preparing for no customs union deal. No, you're not, because you need capacity to, to check every lorry that comes into and out of mm. Dover, Hull, etc. And you need those places and a new computer system in place in the next 18 months. Yeah. 
which is that great. is an unbelievable level of investment to it. If you can even do it, if it's even possible, yeah, if there's you a, would need to throw like, a hell of a lot of money. If that. there's an off-the-shelf solution somewhere, yeah, it, it might be possible. Otherwise, you have to be commissioning computer systems, which. I just, I just acquiring land and buildings and training people. You know, we say it takes apparently it takes twelve months to fully train up custom searching officers to be able to do that stuff. You know, we need to be hiring these people now yeah. in the event of, and certainly we needed to be pouring concrete at Dover a year ago if we were genuinely preparing for no deal. Yeah. So one of the things which strikes me is there is a talk of no deal, and when we even uh, even have a rudimentary discussion of no deal, it's quite clear to me that. This is just simply a no. It, it, it simply won't happen because, and that's kind of always been our judgment that it's so catastrophically bad yeah. that just neither side would but allow just it. Just, but just practically, it couldn't be done. I mean, it simply just couldn't be done. I mean, it, 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 it would cause economic chaos, absolute economic chaos. Uh, on both sides, we would suffer more because of the relative share, but it would cause colossal problems for mm. for European countries and uh, and com- and companies in those countries. So, um, we, I mean. I guess where I'm going with, with this is, with that in mind, why are we hearing, and particularly over the last week, a lot more politicians on both sides advocating that no deal is more likely? And are they talking about, you know, a, a one in 2,000 chance going to a one in um, 1,999 chance? I mean, what, what is the point in this? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's mainly been commentators and, and journalists. Basically, since, since Theresa May made her speech in the Commons this week... Um, which, which reiterated again much of what was said in Florence um, but there, there are a couple of new additions um, which mainly came out actually in the MPs questions uh, afterwards um, and it, it seems to be that the government, the government's approach uh, I've described it as the government backing itself into a corner and I think what's happening is it's, it's pushing us down one of two routes one of two possibilities I think the, the chance of us getting a deal which satisfies all our red lines and, the, and all the EU's red lines and makes everyone happy you know, has never been high but I think the chances of that happening now are, are less than they've ever been and what is more likely is either that we exit without a deal or either that we exit essentially on, on the EU's terms at, le- at least in the short term I mean, if, if, we, think, if we think about the, the transition arrangement which Theresa May is asking for now mm. um, what we're essentially asking for is that we basically continue on all the same terms that, that we would be under uh, if we maintained membership. Uh, she wants everything to remain exactly the same in terms of trade, customs agreements, things like that. But she wants everything to remain in status quo mode whilst we are outside the EU and outside the single market and outside the customs union. And Theresa May is, is putting this forward as her offer to Brussels for them to accept or rebut or whatever. And it's not an offer because we haven't laid out exactly you know the systems which we would... We would we would like to see put in place to make this work but what it seems to me is happening is is that we are essentially capitulating to the EU but the government is trying to frame it in such a way that we are actually kind of winning um, and it's a stra- and, and I think this this is why people are suggesting that the chances of no deal are going up is because we're not getting any closer to each other and you know we've basically put the same offer on the table two or three times now and Brussels have come back every time and said this isn't good enough and you know we, we change it slightly so there was a, a, a slightly stronger commitment to uh, maintain our budget contributions mm. um, for example in, when, when she spoke in the House of Commons um, but May puts this on the table as an offer for the EU to then reject or, or, or to go along with and from the EU side of it uh, they haven't changed what they're asking for 
um, basically since the talk, talk started because to do that is very very difficult you know you, you, Barney needs to go to the 27 and get an agreement that they're going to change tack and it's much much more difficult for them to do that than it is for us to do that and what, what I see happening at the minute is that essentially we are asking to be put in a situation where, where we are still completely subservient to the EU uh, we fall out of all its institutions lose all of our influence at least for two years um, uh, and everything remains exactly the same but at the same time we're technically at the, the single market and the customs union you know MP, there were some MPs asking great questions about around the technicalities of how that works and essentially the government, government's response is to just use such muddled language that no one can really work out what they're asking for so essentially the deal that you're describing here is we will give up the EU institutions like medicines agencies and so forth and our voting rights in return you've got to not call us a member but give us all give, give us all of the benefits yes yeah. that, that, that's pretty much what it seems to me we're asking for that seems, that seems a fairly straightforward deal to hammer out then considering there is there is absolutely no legal precedent for, for, for that situation uh, it, it creates massive issues on the EU side of things because it's, it's unprecedented in law um, Theresa May said she won't go along something like CETA she won't rely on membership of the EEA so none of the structures that are already in place will be the ones for us it has to be something totally bespoke um, even though it, it won't be, it won't be something totally bespoke. But I, th- I think this goes back to the idea that how that long would this bespoke deal take to work out? Is that or is that the, the, the idea of the transitional arrangement? Well, I mean, this is the whole point because they just keep. It's all about oh, it's very easy because we share. You know, you know and again, actually, in her speech, you know, she reiterates this: we share all the same laws, mm. everything's equal. And it's like yes, but the challenge of a fra- of a tr- of a trade deal, you know, an enhanced you know, trading relationship deal, is it's about how you manage those things not diverging over time mm. you know she said oh we might want to diverge in sectors and all that and the EU has said we are not negotiating no. sector specific deals you forget it they're just not interested yeah. but I mean um, the, at some level they're going to have to be interested at some point and the thing I don't get about the EU negotiations is I simply don't know where, where we're at so you know if someone Someone asked me where we're up to with you, you know, with citizens' rights. I couldn't tell you what the sticking points are. Yeah, oh, it's all there actually. It's all published. So yeah. there's a there's a there's a nice table in um, in red, yellow, and green in uh, on the commission's like website where which we, shows where we've agreed and where there are still divergences and uh, and all the rest of it. And but it's mostly it is mostly actually us capitulating to them on all of those issues where we've gained ground because essentially, Alex said earlier, the huge challenge is. The negotiating guidelines have been set by Parliament and European Council, they've been ratified, they've been given to Barnier. He has to deliver in scope of those. Mm. Him trying to get an agreement with us outside of that scope involves going back to the European Council and getting unanimity across all 27. Now, what we're seeing is some nations in the EU are now starting to realise a bit of the strength they've got. So we've seen comments from Barnier recently saying actually he was minded to move on beyond citizens' rights because we're about 95% of the way there now, yeah. apparently. He said, I'm not minded to move on. We're close enough that we can start talking about that transition. Um, but Germany and France pushed back on that. Um, he said, well, you know, I'm starting to think about, you know, we should be ready to move on to more transitional talks because there aren't too many sticking points left. But again, Germany, France, one of the nation states, I can't remember, are realising actually they've got a unanimous veto. You know, each member state has a veto here. Mm. And actually we can, you know, they've got they've probably got the most political leverage over a massive global economy that they will ever have that they'll ever have the, uh, at this point. So why would you lose that opportunity? Yeah. From, you know, from their point of view, or I mean, yeah, so it's understand how it frustrates us and what we're trying to achieve, but from their point of view, it's perfectly rational behaviour. Now, there is, would you call it a split in EU thinking? Because there was the Danish 
finance minister, I believe, came out and said, right, it is time to talk trade. So, uh, you know, just because the... Let me phrase this a different way. Does the veto basically obstruct people doing, doing stuff? So are France and Germany going to be using the veto to stop people like Dem- um, uh, De- Denmark mo- uh, moving things on? Well, uh, potentially, yeah, because you you need it, it doesn't need unanimity at the European Council or whatever the final deal is. It needs qualified majority mm. vote. So you'll need to around about two thirds uh, of the population equivalent of the EU. Two thirds of the population. That's how QMV, QMV works. It's not about two thirds of countries. It's two thirds of population equivalents, right? Or economic equivalents, one of those mm. two. Um, so essentially, De- yeah, Denmark on its own. Cannot force this through onto it the next does, stage if you've, got, if you've got other other ones, but then it will go to whatever the deal is. European Council recommends it. The European Parliament then has to pass it. Um, so you've got all the possibilities of European Parliament, the European Parliament potentially turning it down. And forget they did a very cheeky little vote a couple of weeks ago, saying that they thought discussions weren't in a right place to move forward now, the transition. Now they have no say in this. Actually, yeah. that, that that's that was really cheeky. Um, mm. All this. This is a decision that's been delegated to Task Force Fifty and Barney. The Parliament has no say in all that. That they wanted to shoot a message across the bow. Interesting, it got moved. It came on the Tuesday before Theresa May's speech. It was they, the Parliament was trying to schedule it for thirty minutes before she spoke, uh, which is you know a nice. But that that gives you a sense of where the temperature of yeah. the European Parliament is here on all of this. And of course, whatever comes out will be a change to international treaties, which means all twenty-eight member states, us included will have to pass the change in their own domestic parliaments. Some places have subnational parliaments which have to be con- uh, uh, talked to for constitutional reasons. So hmm. you remember when, was it Flanders? Wallonia. Wallonia nearly yeah. brought the CETA agreement down on its own. That is still a possible Now, play. I understand that's changed, actually. That is no longer the case, because they were so shaken by the CETA agreement. I think they have actually uh, removed that stipulation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but the, I mean, these are the challenges that are coming through. So it is perfectly possible that you know individual member states will want to exert their force. Though for now, it's a decision for Barnier. You know, the, the European Council has, has devolved all the power on this to Barnier. It's his call uh, until we go back for the European Council meeting, um, at which we've already been told apparently the recommendation is we cannot move forward. Right, brilliant. Uh, it, it does. Uh, I mean, not that we didn't know this already, but it does really highlight the power of Germany. In all this, Just yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't forget, G- Germany is the large, single largest contributor to the uh, net contributor to the EU budget uh, ahead of the us. Large, largest population, Large, yeah, slightly larger than us, uh, not much, but slightly. Uh, and so, you know, it is the one that will be asked to bear the budget yeah. gap when we go, essentially. And don't forget, it's already written hundreds of billions of euros to Greece, which it's mm. currently trying to pretend it will get back. <laughs> but we know, in reality, all that is going to be written off. Yeah. Um, no. Now, does Germany's position change because of the general election? Because we've not actually spoke about the German ge- general election yet. Yeah, I don't think. I think we may have touched it actually when, when you and I chatted on just a couple of weeks ago. I don't think it does, to be honest. Brexit has not been a Brexit was not an issue in the no. German general election, mm. uh, and actually, it's not an issue in most European news. I started following um, you know, European newspapers much more. And they're not talking about it. This is not an issue for the average punter in Europe. Does it change Europe, Europe's negotiating position? Or does something fundamentally change in their mindset when an event either, in fact, an, an event like the German election, which actually wasn't that seismic, but what could be seismic 
would be something like Catalonian independence. Does that make any difference whatsoever? I don't think so, really. I mean, my gut reaction is, you know, we talked about this before, the EU's position from Council to 27 to Parliament to Commission is, is exactly what it was the day after we voted to leave. You know, they've been absolutely clear about what they want to see, and they've been, been incredibly clear about what they will not accept. That's not shifted, and I, I don't see any kind of national issues particularly having any impact on that. No. You know, the EU will protect itself as an entity, A, because it wants to because of the political project and the importance of that. I think its experiences with Greece give you a sense of just how far it is prepared to push its own power. You know, yes. you know, it's, it is not you know, whatever side you're on it is not unreasonable I think to come to the conclusion that the EU was perfectly happy to concede a quarter of an economy and a half of a population to dust yeah. to preserve the integrity of its systems I know it's a harsh call but it's you know you know, they were trained. They were, you know, it was clear they were debating this kind of stuff. Is it right that the EU to protect itself to make sure it doesn't lose a eurozone member? You know, but, I mean, the spin-off could, of that is you need to crush one of the economies. Yeah, that is what they did. Uh, well, I mean, you could make an you could make the very very similar argument um, as the Greeks one for um, Italy, for Spain, mm-hmm. for basically most of southern Europe. Italy and Spain are a bit different just because of the sheer scale. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, you're coming out of the Eurozone crisis in 2013. Lots of people say, well, look, you know, we can sort Greece out, but if Italy goes, they're stuffed. Yeah. Um, you know, for all of Italy's political and economic problems, it's the eighth largest economy in the world. Mm. It's the third largest in the Eurozone. I think it's got the largest bond market in the world, which is one of them, yeah, which is, which so is incredible. Because they always say, you know, we, you know, Europe can afford to run Greece itself if it needs to in terms of cash terms it cannot afford to bail out Italy it cannot afford to bail out Spain mm. uh, those economies are too large so you've got a slightly different scale on that with with the size of the UK um, but you, the EU's vision has always been look you're the ones who wanted to go and you see that in the you know there's some lovely psychoanalysis in I think in the in the Barnier statements and the in the Juncker statements which say look the UK has made a sovereign decision to walk away from the institutions and treaties of the European Union, and we, the EU, must respect their right to do so. Now, that's kind of very cold legalese in one way, mm. but it's also reaffirming it's, all of our structures stay the same. No matter what happens to you, mm. we don't really need to do anything. But of course, all of our yeah. stuff stays intact. See, but of course, that is fundamentally wrong, isn't it? Because they're going to have a massive like, budgetary hole. Things are going to have to change, and they are. They're on. But they're looking to change, and they want to change. And the five presidents' report talks about greater integration, all that kind of stuff. And we see more noises from from Tusk on all that. But the truth, I think, the kind of hard truth is, it will be much easier for Europe to do those changes without us. I think this we're the body that's always held that back. And I think this is one of the most important points of all, which is maybe if we got out their way and we can do it in an amicable uh, fashion actually will be both better off for it because they can federalise and we can trade and all the rest of it. Possibly. I think it's, you know, and there's a colossal amount of caveats on us coming out better on how we do it. I think yeah. We've always maintained it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say at the moment it's probable. Mm. Um, but certainly I can, I can see benefits for the EU. It loses a massive nation out of its trading power. You know, that will, you know, taking us out will affect its ability to do big deals in the future because you're, you're taking out a massive global contributor. Uh, the other kind of more liberal northern European econ- uh, economies will be worried about where the EU might go without us because mm. we were the 
the big break on massive integration and uh, you know more socialist interventions, more market only interventions. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of at least in terms of where the if we say the bureaucracy wants to go in the future, yeah. us being out probably makes life easier for them. Completely agree. It, it, I mean, that goes that goes back to why I think that the current approach doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. It's because because the, the transition that we're asking for is basically to remove our influence from the EU, but essentially to, for us to remain a member. So the EU can go and do whatever it wants, but we will have no influence and won't be able to slow it down anymore. And then my 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 thinking on it is that we'll get stuck in that position for a long time. And that's because, a huge risk for us, yeah, as an economy, it's a huge risk. Which, which, is, which is why I, th- I think the approach is, is, is so silly, really, because the, the government is setting itself up, first of all, to negotiate... It, Theresa, Theresa May is saying that the transition isn't going to be bespoke. It's just going to be on the same terms as, mem- as membership. But if, if it's going to be on the same terms as, me- as membership without us being in the single market, the customs union, or the EEA, or having something like CETA, then it, then it, is, it is bespoke because that position doesn't currently exist. So yeah. it, is, it is bespoke, and it is something which is going to have to be negotiated. So they're setting themselves up to negotiate a bespoke transition arrangement, only then once we're in that transition position to then go and negotiate a bespoke free trade agreement more comprehensive than CETA or, or the South Korea, South Korea one. So we're setting ourselves up for two, uh, two periods of negotiations here. And Theresa May, whilst previously saying that the, the transition period would be time-limited, actually said in the Commons this week that it would be, uh, according to what they know currently, it looks like it will take about two years to do this, but it's kind of open-ended. It will just last for however long it takes for us to go from that step to the next one. And, and we know, of course, the EU won't accept that. In their negotiating agreements, any transition has to be time-limited. That's strict from their side, too. Yeah, but everything's got to be ta- time-limited. So it wouldn't surprise me one bit if the negotiation window, uh, you know, um, expands. Same with the, you know, you can see it saying, no, it's going to be time limited to three years. And after two well, years. Well, I mean, actually, extending the negotiating period yeah. is exactly what we should be doing. Exactly. Yeah. It's, that's yeah. that's a, a massive reason why the current strategy doesn't make yeah. any sense because everyone seems to have forgotten that we can go and ask for Article 50 to be extended. So, or, or, as it is found out, well, as it is reminded to us this week, revoked. Yes, so we can. can so we're gonna, yeah. I can honestly see us going up to like uh, the day before leaving and then actually. We'll have that back, probably. Yeah, I don't think it would create a great deal of political capital for the next set of round of negotiations in the future. <laughs> I think the other challenge, or the, the transitionary period, as sort of Theresa May's putting it, is, is that it's, you stay in everything for the benefits, but you have absolutely no influence. We've no MEPs, we've yeah. no representation at council, all the rest of it. What an opportunity for the EU. What an opportunity to say, actually, well, you know, what rules might we put through in that period where the where the UK is part of us but has no say? Mm. What a great opportunity to say, actually, Euro Euro trading must only take place in the eurozone, yeah. and we have no representation in Canada to fight back. Yeah, I mean that's kind of you know bold and ambitious and slightly it's, scary stuff. But kind of the the EU in its own interest would be bonkers to not this, try. This this is why this is why I kind of don't agree with the people who are currently saying that that no deal is is getting more likely. Um, I, I think what is becoming more likely is that is that we will leave essentially on exactly the EU's terms, mm. but the EU will allow us to kind of sell the idea that we've won to the people. And I, I think that's the, I, I kind of feel like that's that's the government's current strategy because yeah. it, it's it's put itself in such a corner now. And essentially, what what it's asking for of the EU is for us to be put into a a worse position than membership, a worse position than being. Norway, it's it's the worst position that currently exists. Essentially, being party yeah. to everything that the EU does, but with having no influence over it, that would be a massive win for the EU. That would be the punishment almost. Yeah. But 
the way that the government is kind of playing with the language and saying, well, you know, this is the right thing to do and blah, 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 blah. They're currently trying to sell that position as a win for us. And it makes me wonder whether the EU are going to catch on to this and go, you know what, yeah, yeah, you, you've won, you've, you've done really well here, yeah, we'll give you that transition period you're asking for. Because really, we gain absolutely nothing from that position. Now, if you want to be completely Machiavellian, let's talk about your, um, the, what do you call it then, the Euro... Um, you just mentioned it, Christian, trading. Uh, the uh, Euro, Euro bond clearing, the Euro all bond that, Euro clearing, yeah. Thank you. What other areas might the EU decide to tamper with? Fishing, that kind of thing? Fishing, I mean, you know, with the potential that. Huge. I mean, interestingly, though, Theresa May said in the in answers to her questions in the House the other yeah, day that the, the UK would then would fight, would, would in 2019, despite the transition agreement, would find itself outside CAP and the CFP, common agricultural and common fisheries policies. Um, so actually, we're not underneath everything. It's not a status quo transition mm. at all. You come out of that. Now, actually, of course... Be, being party to single market and all that that brings, but not being party to CAP and CFP looks very, very like the EEA. Mm. Yep. That uh, basically is EEA membership. Yep. Um, so that's sort of an interesting one. It's just trying to piece this together, but it's the lack of clarity over all this. Do you think, I mean, I, I know I've been maybe a little bit more optimistic than you, than, than you two, but I do believe there is some clarity underneath all this. There is a centralised plan. They're just not allowed to, talk, just not allowed to talk to talk about it or disseminate it to the public. And I think that's, that's fairly reasonable if that was the if that is the case, because we can't have um, our negotiating position out there publicly. Because you've got the, the the dual problem of negotiating with the public and then also negotiating with uh, Europe. So well, I think. How- I think, though, that the, the whole problem is this trying to maintain two separate negotiation strategies. Mm. So, you know, we saw it from Barnier's comments earlier this week and from Tusk. One of the reasons they're getting jittery about the ability to get a deal away, because they've said, no, it's not going to happen in October, it may not even be on the agenda for the, for the October Council meeting, is actually we don't believe that there's a political stability to actually deliver on this. How much power does May actually have to determine all of this? And you say, well, why is she asking that? I said, well, actually, don't forget. It's almost like the UK government forgets that all of our colleagues in the EU read our newspapers and see our TV. Because every time Theresa May stands up in Florence and says, we're going to go for a transitional deal, it's going to be stable, it's going to be all this, all this, and then stands up in Parliament and says something else, she undermines herself and the UK's mission every time. Because it's almost like, oh, I'm talking to the UK, so Barnier won't hear this. But of course, of course, everything is being reported back, and of course, everything's being analysed to the nth degree. So every time we say something different, every time the prime minister says X to the EU, Y to the UK, and then Boris Johnson says Z, and David Davies says Z1, mm. the EU is quite rightful to say, actually, what is your position? Mm. Yes. Yeah, How can we have confidence? What are you actually trying to achieve? You know, I, I, I still think, and um, you uh, mentioned it a long time ago, the best option, both politically and practically, the Tory party, would have been to open this up to being cross-party. That's the only way we could get a stable, a, stable, a stable position and not worry about the politics within the nation. Yeah, I agree. Because, as you say, if, if there is a plan behind this, and I'm, I'm not sure that there is, but if, if there is one, it, it's not a very good one. No. based on the evidence that we've got currently and I think if there is one it's it's only been formulated based on being pushed into that position from past mistakes essentially which is why I keep saying I, I think the only way for this to the only, the only way for this to work properly now from this point is for there to be a total reset of, of approach and red lines and everything Now is it too late for it to be cross party? 
Um, I mean, technically, no. Um, I think the huge challenge, of course, for for Labour is it, it's seeing what the Tory party is going through as it tries to reconcile this, and it knows that it it's, it's opening yeah. itself up to cross party. Will we'll, we'll do all of that to the Labour party. I don't think Labour wants wants in. Well, that, that, that's that's why I kind of want them in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we will see. Right, gents. Um, what is going on uh, this week with the um, with the Chamber of Commerce? Obviously, you've come off all the hectic stuff from the Tory Party conference. What's going on now? Hectic stuff. Well, interesting. Just after so we're recording this on Wednesday this afternoon, I'm off down to a meeting with uh, with a few business and representative organisations, a couple of companies we're taking, and uh, one of the permanent secretaries to the Home Office. Oh well. Wow. Uh, to talk Brexit migration policy. Um, so that's a, that's a chance, really. That's Home Office in listening mode, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we're taking a couple of our members down there to talk about that. So the, the number of roundtables and engagement events is increasing. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like Brexit's coming back on back on the agenda, uh, you know, behind the scenes at least. But I'm certain in, in a more public sense soon. Um, from us and BCC down in London, um, we, we went through a period where everyone kind of, kind of got bored of it and nothing was happening. But it, it really it really is kicking up a gear now, um, and I think things are getting scary. So I, I think Brexit's yeah. going to enter the. Uh, Enter the conversation and our output in a in a bigger way. Yeah, I think so. As we get towards Christmas, well, one podcast that never gets bored of Brexit is the last week in Brexit podcast. (laughs) So, if you do like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm I'm at Jay Beardmore. You gentlemen are where? Uh, At GMCC underscore Christian. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. Yeah, and if you've got any technical questions, fire into those last two Twitter accounts. (laughs) Uh, Until next week, uh, we will see you then. Goodbye. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.